I got sick with COVID-19 on March 7th. I was in Washington at the time. My symptoms began as a sore throat and fatigue. A cold, I thought, or some other trifling virus. My symptoms didn't match the descriptions of COVID-19 at the time, and there was only one confirmed case in the region. So I pushed through, continuing to run, hike, and rock climb. But exertion brought on new symptoms, dizziness, breathlessness, and burning in my chest. Okay, so it was a bad cold. Just as quickly as these symptoms had come, they disappeared. I felt fine for several days. I flew home to Kentucky. A couple days after my return, I went for a trail run. I remember the last hill of that run, in part because of the way my chest filled with fire and I realized my cold was back, and in part because I haven't run up a hill since. That was day 10 of my COVID journey, the day my symptoms reemerged and morphed, becoming frightening, debilitating, and downright strange. Today is day 232 of my COVID journey. By now, I'm supposed to be able to offer you a happy story about my full recovery, but I can't. Like tens of thousands of others, I am a COVID-19 long hauler, meaning that I suffer from debilitating symptoms months beyond the initial viral infection. So I can't offer you a rosy tale of complete recovery. Instead, I can offer you something more nuanced and I hope more valuable. I can offer you a story about the transformative potential of personal hardship. I can offer you a story about embracing grief, allowing it to do its work, allowing it to be good grief. My blueprint for transformation was set on the evening of day 11. I'd been struggling for breath for most of the day. I was weak, dizzy, exhausted, and scared. My lungs felt shrunken, like balloons that refused to inflate. It couldn't be serious, though. I was young and fit. COVID-19 wasn't supposed to be a risk for me. So why did I feel like I was suffocating? I went to bed. What else could I do? My doctor had insisted that going to the ER would put me at higher risk by potentially exposing me to other viruses. There's nothing we can do for you, he said. You're best off at home. It's hard to sleep when you can't breathe, though. It's hard to sleep when you don't know if you'll wake up. I could feel my panic rising, and unfortunately, both breathing and sleep are made more difficult by panic. It's terrifying and lonely, the struggle for air. Every breath and effort, and no amount of effort sufficient to the task of pulling in oxygen. I knew that I needed to quell this rising panic. I'd already learned the power of self-compassion during earlier challenges in my life, and so that is where I turned. This is hard and scary, I told myself, but just take it one breath at a time. And then somehow, I don't quite know how, I found myself floating out of my own lonely and terrified body. My body became one among thousands. I could feel the reality of people crowded into ICUs in New York and Italy. People who were even more desperate for air than I was. In that moment, how many others were lying in bed, intensely focused on each breath, wondering whether they would make it through the night? How many were asking themselves, like me, if they should go to the hospital? 
How many were in the hospital and worrying that they might never make it out? The struggle for breath stopped feeling lonely. I relaxed into the shallowness of my breathing. I imagined myself drawing in air for the thousands of people who needed it more than I did. I willed a portion of my oxygen to float into their lungs. I don't know if this flight of fancy changed anything for anyone else, but it changed me. I already knew, of course, that we are all interconnected and love heals and yada, yada, yada. But knowing that cognitively is different than feeling it right down into your cells. COVID-19 has changed my body at the cellular level, but it's also compelled me to take the things that I knew in my brain and suffuse them into my being. In many ways, I'm a different person than I was seven months ago. I know myself better. I feel more connected to others. I am more resilient. None of this growth would have happened if I hadn't allowed myself space in which to grieve, to feel the full weight of loss and the full uncertainty of life. This is why I call grief good. I still allow myself abundant space for it. I have to. My symptoms fluctuate so much from day to day or even hour to hour. Over and over, I think I've turned a corner only to be slammed back again. With each setback, I take time and space to grieve, though I find I need less and less of it. I am learning to accept the ups and downs. Our culture urges us to run from darkness, bleakness, heaviness, uncertainty. Grief is not sexy, it tells us. Fear is a sign of weakness. Or perhaps we are told, and tell ourselves, that we have no right to grieve when others have it so much worse. There will always be someone who has it worse. This does not invalidate my pain or yours, nor should it. Every one of us is experiencing loss right now. Some of our losses are collective. Some are very personal. Many of these losses are ambiguous. The loss of face-to-face -face social connection is an ambiguous loss. We have no real closure. We can't honestly promise ourselves that on such and such a date, we will be able to hug all of our loved ones again. The losses of work, financial security, hobbies, or routines that have been interrupted by the pandemic are also ambiguous losses. We don't know what the new normal will look like, and we don't know when it will arrive. Perhaps some of you have also lost health or physical ability during the pandemic. Maybe you have even lost people you love and been unable to mourn their passing in the usual ways. Loss piles on loss, and we struggle to find closure. Maybe it feels easiest to ignore or deny our own pain. Because so many of our losses are ambiguous, it's hard to figure out how to accept them, understand them, and rebuild meaning. We didn't choose our losses, but we do get to choose whether to acknowledge our grief and explore it, or run, numb, and hide. Grief will change us either way. If we choose to allow and befriend our grief, we get to have some say in what that change looks like. We get to grow. Grief may not be a sexy or popular topic, 
but it is a universal experience. So if you feel sad, you are not alone. If you feel lonely, you are not alone. If you feel angry, as if somebody should have done things differently to prevent this from happening, you are not alone. If you struggle to concentrate, you are not alone. If it feels harder to get out of bed in the morning, you are not alone. If you eat too many potato chips and watch too much Netflix, you are also not alone. My struggle for breath connected me with thousands of others. My seven-month roller coaster of post-COVID symptoms connects me with tens of thousands of others. We gather in online support groups to buoy one another up. We conduct our own research and build advocacy groups, all while battling entire armies of symptoms. I write a weekly newsletter to offer encouragement for my fellow long haulers. Doing so nourishes me as much as it nourishes anyone else. Every one of us started our COVID journey feeling completely and utterly alone. That loneliness drove us to connect, and that connection is proof that for every solitary struggle we find ourselves in, someone else is struggling in the same way. Whatever your journey looks like right now, whatever losses and challenges you are facing, and however isolated you may feel, your feelings link you to thousands of others. So here's the thing. When we run away from our dark, heavy feelings, we run away from a source of connection. When we run away from our grief, denying it or drowning it out with alcohol or the bright and incessant light of a screen, we run away from growth. When we run from our loved one's grief, telling them to look on the bright side or awkwardly changing the subject, we sow seeds of disconnection where something beautiful could have bloomed. Of all moments, Surely in this one, where so much of our loss is collective, we can do the uncomfortable and transformative work of sitting with others in our grief, of talking openly, of being vulnerable, of supporting and sharing when no fixing is possible. Most of our external circumstances cannot be fixed right now, but we can grow, becoming more resilient. Instead of running from grief to show everyone how strong we are, we can choose to step into our grief and continue building our strength. Let me be clear, stepping into grief and metabolizing it looks nothing like Popeye throwing back a can of spinach, muscles suddenly rippling with renewed strength and spiritual vitality. For me, stepping into my grief has meant hours of crying. It's meant days in which I decided I was allowed to feel despondent from dawn till dusk. It's meant acknowledging the very real possibility that I may never fully recover. It's meant distancing myself from the friends for whom I'm feeling much better, thanks, was the only acceptable answer to the question, how are you? It's meant opening myself more deeply to others who understand the pain of living with an illness that is utterly uncharted and unpredictable. I have one rule for myself, and it's this rule that makes the black pit of grief a transformative place, a place from which resilience, compassion, wisdom, and meaning can grow. It's this rule that makes grief good, good grief. The rule is, I must be kind to myself. I must treat myself 
with the love, patience, humor, curiosity, and acceptance that I would treat my dearest friends. Because I can count on myself to be kind, I can descend into grief, knowing that I'll find my way to the other side, trusting that the parts of me that get scraped off along the way weren't parts I was meant to keep. If you're trying to find the courage to experience and process your own grief or pain, start by practicing kindness and compassion toward yourself. Build that muscle first. If that feels like a hard starting place, then you can start by imagining others whose suffering is similar to your own. Build compassion for them. Notice the wishes or prayers that you send their way. Notice what words of empathy or encouragement come to mind. And then allow those wishes, prayers, empathy, and encouragement to circle back to you. The present feels ambiguous for all of us. The future of my health is uncertain. It would be nice if my body would hurry up and heal. And yet, I hope I never recover from the lessons of good grief. I hope I never recover from the belief that we are all connected, that we are never alone. I hope I never recover from the awareness that life is characterized by uncertainty and from the belief that love, not fear, clinging, or accruing power and possessions, that love is the only adequate response to our vulnerability. I hope I never recover from the belief that light is often best comprehended from the confines of a long, dark tunnel or the bottom of a deep, black pit. I hope I never recover from the knowledge that joy, peace, connection, Gratitude, awe, and hope can sit alongside our bleakest, heaviest feelings. I hope I never recover from the courage I feel right now. The courage to allow fear, pain, loss, and grief to transform me for the better.